Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, I'm here with Nick Chatrath, and he is Managing Director of Artesian Transformational Leadership. And um, he has a book called The Threshold Leading in the Age of AI. And I got an advanced copy. It's just coming out very shortly. And uh, I met Nick because I have a friend who is a member of parliament in the House of Lords in the UK, Nat Way, introduced me to a gentleman named Andrew Rogers, who introduced me to Nick, which got me into this circle of high-end Oxford, Cambridge business consultants. And Andrew said, oh, Perry, you need to meet this guy. And he was absolutely right. And the reason he was right is I've been interested in AI on a couple of different levels for a very long time. One of them, the obvious one, is that I wrote the book on Google ads and Facebook ads, and that kind of AI is probably where the most money has been spent and made on AI in the history of the world, as far as I can tell, is online targeting and advertising. And so naturally, that's a thing. And all of those platforms now, AI and managing the AI, teaching the AI, training the AI, asking the AI the right questions is all how you make anything succeed or fail. But the other reason I'm interested in AI is because of biology and evolution. And uh, I wrote a paper a year and a half ago with the mathematical proof that the kind of intelligence that humans have, computers do not have and will not have at all, unless the very definition of a computer and the very architecture of a computer changes. And so, when this book got in my hands, I was super interested and I dug in and um, it turns out, Nick, and this is just where I want to start off our conversation. This is not really a technological book, although it certainly takes a whack at various technological questions many times in many places. It's really a leadership book. And it's a book that asks the question in a world of super powerful tools, how do you care for and grow the humans? Is that a fair uh, a summary of, of what you're trying to accomplish with this book? Thank you, Perry. Yeah, and um, kind introduction. I'm not sure I've been associated with high end before. Yeah, I think it's a very good summary, Perry, because you use the word human there. And I think it's a leadership book and an AI book. And the title is The Threshold, which is this invitation to humans to develop, to evolve their own consciousness. And by the way, I'm not an expert at all on evolution when it comes to you know, the biological discipline. And I'm not taking a mathematical approach 
at this but this is a an invitation to humans to expand their concept of what it means to be human well so i think this is important because a lot of people more implicitly than explicitly they think that humans are machines they think that humans are computers and that the best thing that a human could ever do would be to be as good as a computer which is almost that's almost what's going on when you take the SAT, right? Like, well, can I get the right answer? Can I get as good of an answer as a computer would get? And what you're really saying is, no, a human is a very, very, we both agree completely on this. A human and a machine are two very different things. And humans trying to be machines is a giant mistake. And what your book is really doing is calling humans to be human, and you're calling out what is the humanity in a business, in an organization, in leadership, and how do you become more fully human so that you can manage the AI and the tools and do what you want to do rather than the AI and the tools managing you and you becoming a slave and ultimately running a, a lousy organization with a lot of miserable people who are chasing a lot of goals that are unsatisfying. That's what I'm getting out of this. Yes, and it's about um, focusing more on those capacities, those capabilities where AI is least likely to usurp them in the future or AI-fueled software or software and hardware combinations are least likely to usurp them. And one example of this is something I've been learning a lot about recently as a leader myself, which is embodying intelligence. And I was inspired by Larissa McFarquhar, who wrote a, a phrase that was a bit similar to this. And the way I phrase it is that the fact that machines are not made of flesh makes more of a difference than we realize. Mm. And I mean, your example, your introduction there was a good one in, in terms of machines can be always on. I mean, fine, maybe sometimes we need to unplug them for whatever reason, but essentially right. they're always on. Whereas we cannot, as humans, we need to cherish these rhythms of recovery and performance. And it's the pulse between the two that is important. And as a leader, I found recently that really tapping into what my body knows is very important. And it helps me see things ahead of time. If I rely purely on my rational brain, is this client agreeing with me is my employee happy with me and I'm, I'm trying to logic solve it if i only rely on that i miss so much and earlier today for example i was in a meeting and suddenly i noticed i, I was starting to shake a little bit almost from my gut something someone else said and it was there was nothing wrong with with how he said it but it raised a topic that was quite triggering for me and in that moment so i've been working quite a lot on embodied intelligence recently I noticed that I was starting to shake a little bit, sort of from my gut and then outwards. And I, I'm thinking, this, I'm getting triggered here. There's something going wrong here. And you know, I could quite easily respond from my worst self. So I said to my colleague, would you mind if we discuss this topic next week? I think it's really important. And now I've bought myself five days and you know, yeah. I can feel the temperature coming down. So that was embodied intelligence. These kind of tapping into our physical being is likely to be a big arena of growth. And it's about um, spotting those as yet untapped or as yet relatively untapped arenas of growth for humanity.
So take me back. There has to be some time when AI was not even on your radar and you had no intention of writing an AI book, but something happened or some sequence events happened and your attention turned to this and you said, there is a big gap here. We are missing something here. If we plunge too recklessly into this, we're going to be in trouble. What was that? Well, this sort of topic, I think, has been laying dormant in me for many years because I did actually start my undergrad by studying maths. So I'd be interested to see that mathematical proof that you referred to earlier. I'd be interested to have a look. Um, and this interest in computers has always been there for many decades for me. But it was about six years ago that I was leading an AI integrated startup. Uh, we were trying to put AI and wearables and coaching, mm. human effective coaching, all those three things, we're trying to put them together. And the idea was inspired actually in a conversation that I was having with Lord Way, who you mentioned earlier. So we started this startup. I was CEO of it for two and a half years. And uh, that really got me interested. And I stepped away from the startup at some point and uh, I, I just had this torrent of ideas when I was out running one day and mm. uh, I finished the run and I wrote down these ideas and they were about AI and humanity and leadership. And then I promptly forgot about those ideas. This was five years ago. And, th and then three months after that, I was having a shower and then another flood of ideas to use a terms came over me. And uh, then I got out in the shower, wrote those ideas down and then I had the bright idea of comparing the two ideas and they were basically the same. And mm. that triggered a thought in my mind that, okay, maybe I'm coming up with something that feels important to me. I had written a book before and I know how long it takes. And it takes me a long time to write. I'm a very slow writer. Um, and so I actually spent about six months really cogitating on the idea and then deciding whether it's worth writing a book. But the more I looked out at the marketplace, the more I was seeing a lot of great books on AI with a relatively shallow understanding of the dynamics of human transformation, which is what I've spent more than two decades on in my career and what we as a firm consult on. And then on the other hand, seeing lots of tremendous books on human transformation and leadership, but unrooted in the realities of AI as uh -huh. it was developing so fast. So there was something in the intersection from someone who had experience of both that attracted me. Well, this would not be surprising because it's very kind of like there's people, people and there's thing people and the thing people love the things and the people, people love the people. And only some people are able to cross pollinate those two worlds. And you're like, we got to bridge these together. Yes, we've got the soft skills and those are super important. But then we've got all of the data scientists and the programmers and all of those kind of people. And if we can't get these two extremes on the same wavelength, we're gonna have a problem. So can you tell me more about your sense? There, there had to have been some looming sense of, we're gonna make some mistakes here, or this is dangerous territory, or there's a big opportunity here. How did that come to your awareness? 
Yes, um, I think it's in front of everybody's awareness, really, in terms of the great opportunities that are out there with AI, which has been doing things like solving exceptionally complex biological problems, such mm -hmm. as the uh, protein folding problem. Uh, the result there was greatly AI-fueled, helping some medical pathways move much faster, such as spotting uh, Alzheimer's through cookie drawings. And there's so much opportunity out there. And the risk, I think, has been well stated, uh, for example, by philosophers. Uh, Nick Bostrom came up with his famous paperclip uh, experiment, uh, thought experiment, said, well, look, if you gave an AI this objective function to produce as many paperclips as it possibly can, then it would be quite rational for that AI system to eliminate humanity, the rest of the universe, simply to provide space to produce as many paperclips as it can. So some wrongly posed purpose statement or a nefarious actor wars between different nations could easily, with such a powerful tool as AI, take us in a negative direction. I think that's a lot and bureaucracies do that all the time. Well, yeah, through bureaucracy and yeah, the lack of focused, efficient action. Um, and I really like what you said about bringing those two elements together, because it really evokes C.P. Snow's famous lecture mm -hmm. in the 1950s around the two cultures. And that is what I think is extremely important for young leaders today. Um, and a lot of universities have spotted this, like Stanford has put in place their brilliant symbolic systems program, bringing these two custom uh, cultures together. I call it, um, well, in fact, there's a professor, Fei-Fei Li, who calls it the double helix in which future students need to be bilingual. So this is not just humanities, like philosophy. This is not just technology. It's putting both together. Why didn't you explain the C.P. Snow idea and what it really means? I don't know that everybody's going to be familiar with that, and I think it's a really important touchstone. Absolutely. Well, and in the way you've just asked that question, I would love to hear your perspective on this as well. So let me just say a few things and then, yeah, please do add. Essentially, what C.P. Snow was referring to was two academic cultures that rarely communicate. So on the one hand, you've got the arts. On the other hand, you've got the sciences. So, I mean, my um, uh, undergrad degree and also my postgrad degrees, including my doctorate, were all in the UK university system. And this is actually historically a very narrow system compared to, for example, the American system. And I don't use narrow pejoratively. All I mean is you focus on one thing much more than in a more, for example, liberal arts education in the US. So often what can happen in the UK is um, you study maths and that's all you study and you don't have a clue about anything like philosophy or higher criticism, hermeneutics, anything else like that. So Snow was saying, yeah, there are these two cultures that just do not communicate. And what we need to do is bridge this gap and have people fluent in both. Um, yeah, what would you add? Well, I would add, so if you study STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, you're going to learn all kinds of analysis and you're going to learn a lot of, of exact answers and optimization and calculation. And it's all extremely powerful, but it doesn't tell you anything about what you should do. And what the humanities have always been concerned with, especially when you get into the religious texts, is what is a human being and what should a human being do and what should a, a society aspire to? And 
how do you define what is good and what is bad? And like I took a, a class called English Authors Before 1800, and we studied everything from Beowulf, which is about 700 AD, all the way through Shakespeare and, and all of those guys. And there's lots of poetry, and it's very concerned with beauty and love and morality and responsibility and, and all of these. And these are squishy topics where there's always a certain amount of ambiguity. You know, read any love story or listen to any country song. There's always good and there's bad, right? And it's all mixed together. And it's the humanities that tell you what an engineer should do. Now, engineering might tell you what good engineering is. You know, engineering might give you a good answer as to whether your iPhone works well or not, or how fast it processes something or not. But it does not tell you what people should use their iPhones to do. It doesn't tell you whether they should be zoned out and hypnotized all day by these devices, right? And so, and so, um, so many times you have, you have engineers and scientists and analysts and mathematicians and, and people like that who they are very good at attaining a result, but they've not even been trained to ask whether they should be doing this or not. And this intersects with my world perfectly well, because what it is, is it, it's a perfect situation for hiring a bunch of really smart people from Harvard and Stanford and Yale and MIT and Oxford and Cambridge who go to work at a big company like Google and they sit in their cubicle and they work on their programs and they make this fantastic software. And, but are they screwing over the customers? Are they screwing over the advertisers? Are they respecting people's privacy? Are they like, as soon as you, like we, we all, we all like it when our devices know what we need, but we're all terrified of big brother using it against us or, you know, losing our political freedoms or losing our privacy. And none of these questions have really nice, neat black and white answers. And I mean, I've watched these big platforms terribly abuse human beings. I mean, just uh, when your ad gets disapproved for some silly reason, just try calling a number and getting any help from anybody, right? So, so like these are very real problems. And so what C.P. Snow, I think it was back in the 50s or something like that, he saw this coming uh, I think it was much less of a problem then than it is now, but he already saw that the technological culture and the soft skills culture don't know how to talk to each other. And like, we, we got to figure this out. And, and so coming back to your book, one of the first things you start talking about in your book is starting your day with space and going for a walk in the park. And see, that's a very interesting approach to AI. Like most AI people are not talking about sitting on the park bench or feeding the ducks or anything. That's not even in the conversation, but this is exactly what 
you're saying, no, if you want to manage AI well, you need to take your dog for a walk in the park. Can you explain how why these things go together so well, even though they're totally different categories? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's about finding where is the greatest value we can add as human beings. How do we access the most stratospheric quality of thinking that we can possibly access? Because as you hinted earlier, if all we're trying to do is mimic a machine and process some kind of algorithm better than a machine, we're going to fail. That's not really the capability area for us to focus on. However, we do have agency and we do have control to be able to create uh, a future of how we want to lead an AI, what kind of AIs we want to create, how we want to direct them, what purposes we want to give them. And if we are to access our best thinking, then we do need to create space in our lives. One analogy I sometimes use is um, around a, a cafetiere, or I think a French press, as it's also called. And I've just started drinking coffee again, actually. I gave it up for 10 years, started three months ago. And so I do like this, this French press approach. And um, when you pour the hot water in, the granules go everywhere. It looks very cloudy. Wait for four or five minutes and the thing, and you just plunge it down and the thing settles down and you can see clearly through some of the liquid there. It's a bit like that with some of our thought processes is if you're taking space, you're cultivating stillness in your life, then you're, um, you're giving yourself the best chance to come up with your highest thoughts. Just reminds me of this old Chinese saying, which is to attain knowledge add something every day mm. to attain wisdom, remove something every day. So this is a call for wisdom rather than trying to add yet another fact onto the list of facts that we already know. You know, I think real wisdom, like if you want to try to precisely define what wisdom is, it's knowing what to do when there's no formula. Like when there's not a rule. And, you know, in life can produce situations that not only you have never seen before, nobody's ever seen before. And so I, I'm really with you here. You've got a quote in your book. Software product developers are often so removed from the consequences of their work that many don't even think of themselves as leaders who have a disproportionate impact on the world. Can you talk about in your career, in your consulting, in your leadership, how are you, when you go speak to a room full of people and you're trying to raise the awareness of it, and let's say a light bulb goes on, and somebody finally gets what you're saying, what is it that they really got? Or what realization are you trying to get them to? Yeah, I love that question. And I think of one client who I won't name as a leader, um, who had a real insight. He was trying to develop a strategy that was multifaceted across many different countries that he was responsible for in this large business. And he had a moment where the penny dropped and he realized that 
he his mindset was all wrong on this problem. He was being very reactive and he wasn't allowing himself to create a solution that would be beneficial for him, his team, his customers. The way that he had this insight, and when I speak to people, I, what I'm not doing is delivering a long lecture with magic bullet insights, if you like, pearls of wisdom from heaven, which I drop down generously on other people. That's not a cool bit. What I do and my colleagues, we do is we create space and there is input, there is expertise in creating this space. But when pe when the penny drops for others, what they have grasped is that they are intelligent. They are capable of doing magnificent, independent thinking. They are creative and worthy of good outcomes. Too often we live in a culture where people interrupt us, they cut off our thinking. The culture we live in is not an environment that's conducive to us doing our finest thinking. And what I'm referring to is often a, a slow development journey, but then as they say, slow work makes fine work. And so the, the light bulb can go on, I think, when people realize, oh, wow, Nick's not actually trying to tell me how I should be. He's inviting me to a place where I can be at my best and I can draw on the diversity of experiences I have, and I can take the time to think at my peak. So just flowing on that line there, you've got a place on page 76, you say, you mentioned Carol Dweck's groundbreaking research at Stanford in which she found that when children were recognized for their efforts to think, they created a belief, then a reality, that intelligence grows. This fascination and these promises are so resolutely undigital, so unmechanical, so unsubverted. In the age of AI, leaders will do their best independent thinking when they bring their whole being to it, brains, mind, body, and soul. And then on the next page, you say, many AI writers focus understandably on how far AI can go beyond its already impressive achievements. My fascination is how far humans can go beyond our, our already impressive achievements. Yeah, well, thank you for reading that out, Perry. I mean, it's so close to my heart is, is these words that you're reading is, is absolutely the heart of what I wanted to bring out here. And um, it's the, the ability to think independently is an ability that we all have. And we're often so far from it when we allow ourselves to be persuaded by digital ads that are AI fueled that are coming up or allow ourselves to be interrupted. The human mind is an exquisite instrument. And I love uh, the John Naisbitt way of phrasing it. You know, he's saying that the most exciting breakthroughs of the 21st century will occur not because of technology, but because of an expanding concept of what it means to be human. And I think we haven't fully tapped into what that expanding concept of what it is to be human is. There is so much more expansion out there. And so it's a massive invitation to people to connect their thinking and their being using independent thinking. So you just caused me to connect a dot. And, and so I want to run with this. I had a conversation two days ago. I, I had a, a webinar with a gentleman named Mitch Axelrod. And he has been coaching people based on the work of Robert Hartman, 
who is a guy who got nominated for the Nobel Prize for his study of the science of value, which is called axiology. And he, he mathematically defined value and he broke it down into that, that there are three categories of value in the world, soul, role, and goal. And soul is the idea that, that a human being has a soul, which is an idea that any, any religious person is going to be familiar with, and that a soul is unique and infinitely valuable, that it, an individual human being is completely unique and completely valuable intrinsically. Role is the job you do or the function you have in your environment. I'm a cook, I'm a dishwasher, I'm a consultant, I'm a teacher. And goal is, well, I got to get to school today at 845 or, I, or we're, we're trying to build a computer program or, or we're, we're building a house. And that there's a hierarchy of value and what humans have a tendency to do is that the soul becomes a slave to the role or the goal and we get it upside down. And so things that we start measuring ourselves against things that machines can do and not realizing the things that we can do that the machines can't. So going back to your book here then, oh, this is a great quote. Marilyn Robinson said, whoever controls the definition of the mind controls the definition of humankind itself. So if you defined a mind as just a, a computer, if you, humans are just machines, which they are not, then you lower humanity. And, and then what you're, eventually what you're going to have is you're going to have a literal competition for the legal rights of machines versus the legal rights of people. I already know a guy who's lobbied congressmen for computers to have human rights. Like I actually know somebody like this. I think he's crazy, but, but these people exist. So as you have, I mean, I, your book comes at a point when AI is literally on a vertical slope. ChatGPT just came out. Like, I don't think you could have planned this any better. So people are just now discovering, oh, yeah, there's such a thing as a computer that there's nobody home. I'm not even suggesting that. But the algorithm does understand what you mean or, or what you're saying. It it, it can verbally and linguistically track with what you type in and it can coherently answer a question. So I've got to think you've got a whole set of thoughts on what this means and how it could be used productively and how it, it might be detrimental. What, what, what are you thinking as this unfolds right now? What, what are you thinking? Well, on how AI might be used productively. Yeah, like <laughs> chat GPT in particular, but like we, we've just turned a corner in the last few months where, okay, I, I ask a search engine the question, it's algorithm. Oh, I, oh, we've seen that question before, 
but now chat gpt is actively answering your unique question that's pretty new to most people so what have we unleashed and where do you see this going well i am no futurologist i cannot you know, predict what's going to happen there's a lot of excitement around chat gpt rightly so uh, a lot of use cases that just weren't available to us before it's not general artificial intelligence yet uh, and they wouldn't claim that it is um you know this idea the way i define it is that narrow ai narrow ai which is what we're in is where ai can do very well in certain narrowly defined elements of cognitive intelligence. General AI would be, as Max Tegmark defines it, is where uh, the AI can accomplish any cognitive task, at least as well as humans. And I would then put a separate definition on after that, which is for a later AI, which is around superintelligence, which I would then expand the list of intelligences beyond just cognitive to all intelligences. So you've got three eras, if you like, the current era of narrow AI, then AGI may happen at some point, and then superintelligence may happen at some point. And there is debate among experts about whether and when that will happen. Um, but I think in terms of the possibilities now, it, we're entering a new technological age with these kind of tools out there. And of course, Google have responded with the release of Bard uh, in recently and also um, noticed uh, in February Baidu's share price jumping upwards mm -hmm. when they announced that they'll be putting out um, an AI tool as, as a rival potentially to chat GPT, which they're calling in English Ernie. I don't speak Mandarin. There is a Mandarin name for this thing. So there's a lot going on out there. And if you think back to previous sort of relatively recent technological revolutions, Nokia, uh, Kodak, you know, they were companies that were on the wrong side or they were doing incredibly well. And then something happens technologically and they didn't anticipate. Technology firms do not stay number one, number two forever. So today, yeah, we're looking at Google, we're looking at Microsoft. Of course, Microsoft had its own troubles years ago when suddenly Google came up with search and now they're they may be coming back. So it's it's difficult to predict in, say, 15, 20 years' time, what will be the companies who will be shaping most the way that we live. And, of course, there's an opportunity there because leaders who are maybe 15 years old now, 20 years old, 25-year-old now, they may be the ones who are the equivalent of the Satya Nadellas uh, and others of 15 years' time. So I would like you to imagine 10 years in the future, and I, I'm not asking you to be a futurist, I'm more asking you to be a, a humanitarian and, and the, like the leadership that you envision. But I want you to imagine that it's 10 years from now, the people that are 18 now are 28. Let's say they're working in the kind of organization that your book is calling people to build. And they are expressing their humanity better than they had been in 2023. And they also have a huge amount of AI tools at their disposal, which, you know, they can say, design me a bridge and an AI goes and designs them a bridge. So in that 
firm of the future, what will people think of as the real work or the hard work versus what do they now consider to just be the easy work, which is very different than what we thought was the hard work and the easy work today? So in any way you want to go with that question, whether you want to go into the organizational dynamics or whatever is important to you, but how is your book shaping them to lead better in 2033? Mm. Uh, Well, let me offer two thoughts on this. Um, Firstly, around collaboration and secondly, around purpose. And collaboration is important. Something we haven't touched on uh, in our conversation so far is the increasing integration between AI and humanity. Mm. Now, as I sit here, my iPhone, and it's on silent and notifications are off, but it is very close to me. It's probably 30 centimeters away from me. And how many of us live our lives with our iPhone or equivalent less than half a meter away from our body for pretty much 24 hours a day? A lot of us live like that. And it's not far from the present situation to a situation where there are very effective implants, for example. Um, So the the hardware could change. I mean, already, essentially, what's really the difference between what we have now and something that's actually attached to my body or maybe some implant within it in some way that has some technology. So the interfaces we will use will probably change from being like the phones we have today. We think back 15 years ago, very different from what we had today. So the reason I say that is that the phrase techno-humanism has been used in many different ways, and sometimes it's used as a religion. But essentially what it means to me, techno-humanism, is this increasing integration between technology and humanity. So that I, I think that in the coming 10, 20 years, it will be increasingly hard to tell the difference. We will still be able to tell the difference, but it will just get, there'll be more and more integration. So a huge question for leaders will be, how do we collaborate with AI? It's interesting about AI is when like chat GPT, everyone's talking about, it's clearly a thing that's out there. But once AI becomes normalized and people are used to it in the culture, the comment has been made by someone else that then it ceases to be called AI. It's just part of the the bloodstream part of the atmosphere of society so Mm. that will apply to more and more things so collaboration how are we collaborating with ai how are we separate from it what is identity in such a future context so these will be hard questions for leaders and the ones that navigate collaboration best will be the most successful let me pause there before i move on to talk about purpose because that's a whole huge area in itself well what i'm picking up in that last thing is it reminds me a lot of electricity. Nobody's really talking about electricity. Electricity is not a conversation. That's it 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 runs in the telephone pole behind my house, it runs under the ground, it's everywhere. If I go to a hotel, they don't charge me extra for electricity. That and that's what you're talking about. That AI is just that available. It's like Wi-Fi. Like 20 years ago, you didn't have Wi-Fi. But and I remember the the future is saying, "Oh yeah, um Internet access is going to be kind of like electricity. It's it's almost there. It's not quite, but it's close, right? And you're saying, yeah, well, being able to um, answer a question uh, like chat, chat GBT or design a bridge or whatever, yeah, that's just going to be, we're just, just going to use it all the time. 
Yeah, absolutely. It'll be much more intuitively available. Uh, and then back to your earlier question around uh, 10 years, 15 years time and what leaders may um, need to focus on that may be hard or easy compared with today. I think this other point of purpose is very important. I notice in some discussions of AI and machine learning that some commentators um, imply or state that machines have purpose. And the way they state it or imply it, in my view, overreaches the, the correct situation. Um, so you sometimes come across statements like, oh, yes, you know, this uh, this machine was was following its purpose, set its own purpose or followed this purpose. I actually think that leaders going into the future will become more sophisticated at nuancing what they mean by purpose, because the machine does have a purpose at some level. It can be given an objective function. It can be given a goal. And I would call that a mechanical purpose. Yes. What it does not have is an intentional purpose setting the intent and so it, i could um say to a given ai okay i want uh, i want you to you know train on this set of data towards this objective function and i'm setting an intent there so the most um, successful leaders will be the ones who focus their efforts on um, setting beneficial purpose uh, with good values with humility with love with playfulness so biology and philosophy have terms for this. And it goes back to Aristotle and probably maybe even Plato, I forget. It's so purpose in the sense of intentionality, the way a human has it, is called teleology. And purpose as a thermostat has it is called teleonomy. Your thermostat has teleonomy, which means that it can obey a rule and it can target towards a certain temperature. But the human who builds the thermostat and sets the thermostat is exercising teleology. And what you're saying is that people are fuzzy on the distinction between these two things and that AI will force us to become clear about them. At least the good leaders will clearly know the difference, which it then tells you a lot about how an organization works. In, in, my, in my business uh, circles, one of my colleagues, Tim Francis, uh, and, and some other people uh, in his circle, they talk about having processes and procedures so that employees always know like how to do a support desk ticket or, or, or whatever. But he says, you also have to have a set of values for your company so they know what to do when there's no rules. Like when some crazy situation arises, well, what are the values of this organization that would tell us how to respond to this support ticket that we've never gotten before and that the employee can make that decision on their own and generally make the right decision and not have to go all the way up to the CEO to say, what do we do about this? How do we solve this $3 problem? Uh, I think that's, that's what you're getting at. And the more algorithms and the more AI we have, the more we have a capacity to, to make a big mess because we did not think about what the purpose was 
and what the values were. I mean, am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely. Uh, and one of those values is humility. I think uh, in inviting people to cultivate humility in their actions. So in the call center or the CEO, knowing that their knowledge is always provisional. Um, and another example of humility would be, I mean, you referred to the example about the software developer earlier and that they can actually have a big detrimental impact on society if they get things wrong. But of course, we mustn't be too hard on them because often they're working on a certain piece of the puzzle. They're going to work every day. They're, they're doing their best. They have good intent. Mm -hmm. um, and also many of us are investors through our pensions or other financial products in those very companies that we might want to be criticizing. So I think humility all around is extremely important, including humility to ask one of the best leadership questions that it's possible to ask, which is, what am I missing? And as AI gets better and better, it's not always about thinking, how can we outcompete out them? Which is why I refer back to collaboration, because there's going to be lots we can learn from others, not just other people, but AIs as well. Hey, Nick, this is great. I do want to recommend The Threshold Leading in the Age of AI by Nick Chatrath. Can you tell people how to get more of Nick? How do they follow you? How do they keep up with what you are doing? Well, thanks for asking that question. Uh, I mean, I'm not a massive social media person. I am on LinkedIn, so that's a good place. So that's probably where I'm most active. Uh, I do sort of connect and engage with people there. Um, I've put the best of my thinking about these topics into the book. So I encourage you to buy the book. Uh, and then for any who are uh, leaders in businesses or other large organizations, then do you know look up the website and or get in touch that way. Well, Nick, thank you again. I think this is very timely. Congratulations on dropping your book like right in the vertical ascent of, you know, everybody's embracing new forms of AI. So, you know, however you manage to do that, congratulations. And um, thanks for doing this work. I really enjoyed it. And I'm so thankful that somebody who's interested in AI is even more interested in humanity. That's a good, good thing. Well, thank you, Perry, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0